Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you may be, however you might be listening. Welcome to episode 72 of What's Up Tuscany, the only English language podcast made by real Tuscans and dedicated to anyone around this clean and pleasant planet that has a special place in his heart for this great land we call home. Every Friday we try to set the tone for your weekend by telling you the stories of our region from the curiosities of today to the pages in the big book of history that have somehow remained stuck. We're pretty much everywhere, from iTunes to Spotify, Google, Audible, from your computer to your smart speaker. If you love Tuscany, stick around, you won't be disappointed. Since when we started this little podcast, we've always done our best to look beyond the headlines, trying to find a way to explain how this land of ours has so much more to offer than the stereotypes famous around the world. While many times this means delving deep into folklore or telling stories to show unusual aspects of our national characters, other time our search for the real Tuscany brings us into unexpected places. A foreigner may very well think that our region is all made of wonderful manicured landscapes where charming towns adorn the side of gentle hills, but reality is sometimes very different. Most of the people born and raised in the city have a romantic idea of the countryside. They find it quaint, curious, a place where life flows at a different pace, where people are far away from the hustle and bustle, much more relaxed and good-natured. When those townies decide to actually move to the countryside, they soon realize that even the most charming landscape comes with a fair amount of thorns. Tuscany is no different. There are plenty of towns and villages that are almost pristine, maintained with meticulous care. This is the side of the Italian countryside that everyone likes the one you will find in brochures and magazines. Not many people take time to look at the other side of the coin, the many hamlets that slip through the cracks of progress hopelessly left behind and forgotten. While Italy remains a country of small towns, the past decades have forever changed its face with millions of people that have left their ancestral homes to move to the big cities. In our time of abundance, Living in the countryside is a choice, a dream for many that after spending decades busting their you-know-what want a quiet place where to spend the rest of their lives. The media, especially during the pandemic, talked quite a lot about people that sold their expensive condos in the city to relocate to a charming, isolated little village. People dreamed about a renaissance in those small villages where people are forced to commute for many miles in order to get to their jobs. Reality is quite different. In Italy, there are more than 2 million homes that have been practically abandoned by their owners, with entire towns and villages that are deserted. You might have bumped into one of the stories that tell how some foreigner bought a house in one of these villages for a single euro, or how several friends decided to try to bring one of these hamlets back to life. The jury is still out on these bold, if somehow reckless, quests. Life in a faraway, isolated place looks much better when you're sitting in your warm, hyper-connected home with a car or two waiting in the garage and money to fill up the tank whenever you want. Only a few decades ago, things were a lot different. Life in the countryside was hard. You worked from dawn to dusk, breaking your back in the fields and sometimes didn't have much to show for all your effort. Making a living working the land isn't easy and you sure won't get rich doing it. When you think that meat is stuff you eat only for the holidays, even the idea of spending your life between a grey cavernous tower block flat and an equally grey factory is much more appealing. Many Tuscan villages were able to survive this flight from the countryside and have adapted to the new reality. 
the people that fled the harsh life of the farm were replaced by others, artists, lawyers, managers. These are the villages that made it. This week, we will talk about some of those that didn't. These towns have nothing. No restaurants, banks, offices, streetlight, not even running water. Some of them are completely empty, despite offering spectacular views and a unique atmosphere. Sometimes their stories are different, harsher than the land that forced people to move away. In one case, one of these hamlets is still haunted by the ghost of a gruesome unsolved murder that a couple of years after the end of the Second World War took the entire country by storm. This is the story of Toyano de Lebrota, an ancient castle in the middle of Valtera and of the cold case that made it a household name before making it fade away from history. Plenty to talk about, so stick around until the end. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Of the many villages that dot the hills between the Arno River and Volterra, few look as out of place as Toyano. Everything about this place brings you back to the origins of the place, which was thought of as a stronghold dominating the surrounding farmland. No one knows when the original castle was built, but we're probably talking about the time of the Lombards, well before the year 1000. Southeast of the town of Palaya, near a couple of streams that provided it with fresh water, the small castle was contended for centuries between Lucca, Pisa and Florence. Between 1362 and 1406, it was destroyed twice and rebuilt from scratch, after many sieges and harsh battles. The origins of the village are unmistakable. The walls and the battlements are long gone, but you can still see the ancient drawbridge, the only way to get into town. The only road that gets you there is unpaved, full of holes and very narrow, so much the two cars don't fit on it. On top of it, it's a one-way street. There is also a small pathway, but it's impossibly steep. You just don't end up in Toyano by chance, you have to want to get there. The place was never very big, not even in its heyday. One street, Via del Castello, less than 100 yards long, two rows of neat houses, a little church, an even smaller cemetery, occasionally maintained by the relatives of the people still buried there. That's it. The place is positively empty, there's no other way to describe it. Chances are you'll be the only person there if you decide to visit. Maybe you will bump into a couple of cyclists, an amateur photographer or a paranormal enthusiast. It's a bit of a shame considered that the three miles of road offer some really spectacular views. Once you get to the village, if you look south, you will see rising from the mist the distant peak of Volterra, surrounded by miles of farms, orchards and small towns. On both sides of the roads there are massive turf spurs, sometimes 50 meters tall, like spires of a gothic cathedral, with their unmistakable grey ochre colour battered by millennia of wind and rain. Especially in the winter, you get an idea of how hard it must have been to live around here. There are fruit trees, planted a long time ago by the ancient villagers, that now only feed the birds and the wild animals. The over 500 people that lived here in the 1800s are gone, 
Most of them relocated in the valley to work in the factories that sprung up around Piaggio, the makers of the Vespa scooter. It was a slow process, something that didn't just happen overnight. Many of those who left maybe thought they would get back to their ancestral homes with that rugged determination that had been honed by centuries of struggles against nature and destiny. Then, who knows, maybe life in the valley wasn't as bad as they thought, they just never came back. Their homes are still here, without anyone caring much about what happens to them. It's not like they're worth something. Who would want to live in a place that it's almost impossible to reach, has no running water, sewers or electricity? One by one, the ancient buildings of the village are being carved alive by the elements succumbing to decay. Back in 2017, probably the oldest building in town, the Badia, was demolished by the Curia of Volterra after they realized it was pointless to think about renovating it. The rural building, according to many, even more ancient than the church of St. John the Baptist, was probably what remained of an ancient monastery, the first nucleus of Toyano, back when civilization broke down and people fled the savagery and massacres by relocating to easily defensible, isolated places. You can see what remains of this monastery before getting into the village, with the rubble barely contained. Ancient bricks, roof tiles, stuff that maybe should be studied by historians, left there to wither away in the sun, the cold and the rain. The stone pavement is only walked by animals and a colony of feral cats, which don't exactly like it when people come to disturb their peace and quiet. You can tell that they're there because pet lovers of the towns nearby come here to bring them some treats, especially in the winter, but they're nowhere to be seen. The cemetery is a somber experience most times, but it's particularly harrowing here in Toyano. Tiny, decrepit, with only a few tombs kept clean by the relatives still living, on a cloudy day is stuff that would make Keats and Yeats swoon. The town itself is a hymn to decay, morbid in its splendor. Wild plants everywhere, poison ivy springing up from every crevice, an overwhelming feeling of emptiness made it all more real by its randomness. The houses that once upon a time hosted many happy meals of large, boisterous farmers' families sit here in their proud loneliness. They were built right, solid, without many frills, which explains why some of them have been able to withstand the test of time. Others are mostly decrepit, with the ceilings showing worrying signs of imminent collapse. If you're feeling adventurous, those houses are able to offer some incredible sights, stuff that's impossible to unsee. Nothing graphic or gruesome, don't worry, but equally startling. Rather than the desolation of the exterior, some of these houses feel like they're still alive with the voices of the people that live there. It's uncanny how many ordinary objects have been left behind, like people left in a hurry thinking they'll be back soon. It's sad that we cannot post many photos on a podcast as some of these houses are incredible. You can find some great pictures in the sites we've linked in the description, they're well worth your time. There is all sorts of things here, from wall clocks that have stopped long time ago to kitchens that still have dishes to wash in the sink, calendars from the 1960s, a coffee maker still on the hob, beds that still have dirty sheets on, an antique motorbike that has somehow found its place in a room at the third floor of a house. It's really weird to visit some of these houses. They look like a living time capsule from the time of the economic boom, the 1950s and 60s, the time when, one by one, the families of Toyano were lured away by the prospect of a better life in the valley. It all looks just right, 
like we're standing in the middle of a photo shoot. Who knows, maybe some of the things that have been brought here and left by those same amateur photographers that sometimes ventured here looking for the perfect shot. Maybe it's all real, a series of oddities left behind by the unrelenting march of progress or a trick of father time. Some things are just too right, like the clothes hangers left outside in the rain and wind on a wire that is still around after God only knows how many years. The doubt remains, too bad there isn't anyone around to answer those questions. Actually, the town isn't officially deserted. In the Palaya Registry office, there are still three or four people living there, but no one has been able to figure out if they are actually around or if they just forgot to change their address. There should be a hardy soul living in a ghost village, apparently. In the early 2000s, Giovanni Cerasoli, a professional scuba diver, decided to launch one of the many repopulation efforts that are gaining steam around Italy, hoping that many enthusiasts would follow him in the tiny Tuscan hamlet. Despite it being flagged to the Italian Conservation Society as one of the places of the hearts, the corners of Italy that deserve to be saved for posterity, the future of Toyano is pretty much dead on arrival. No one is around. The same fascinating objects that attract the eye of the photographers are disappearing one by one, with this little gem of a town slowly falling into complete oblivion. It is definitely a weird experience to spend some time here, one that I would recommend. Not sure why, maybe to remind us all of how nothing in life is set in stone, how impermanence is the essence of our time spent on this earth. If you're spiritually minded, you can maybe get some kind of epiphany on the meaning of life or our place in the universe. I would avoid it if you're not exactly feeling great. It's not a cheerful experience. If that's your cup of tea, don't hesitate. It's not something you find around the corner in any neck of the woods. If you come this far, you may be wondering why fans of the paranormal and the occult are among the very few people that venture up the steep hill to visit the hamlet of Toyano. Sure, those abandoned homes are heavy with the memories of the people that live there, but none of them is renowned for being haunted. The reason can be found a few hundred yards from the village on the one-way road that leads there. On the side, there is a small tombstone, usually kept clean by anonymous hand, that sometimes leave a flower of another memento. The picture is not your typical tombstone photo. The woman pictured is not only young, but looks like a movie star bright dark eyes, amazing smile, flowing hair arranged in a 1940s bun, she looks more like the prettier sister of Judy Garland rather than a woman who died well before her time. Everything about her screams about life, happiness, prosperity, from the flowery Sunday dress to the big fake pearl necklace that highlights the modest cleavage of her dress. If you stop by, you will learn that her name was Elvira Orlandini and that she indeed died when she was very young, only 22. The circumstances that led to her untimely death captivated Italy for months, years, with the trial turning into the first media feeding frenzy, one that led to massive excitement and an unsatisfactory resolution. Yes, because La Bella Elvira didn't die because of an accident, she was murdered in cold blood while she was going to the fountain to get some fresh water. Her death is still a mystery, one of Italy's most famous cold cases. The story looks like it's been taken from a 1940s pulp novel, but it's very real, and the reason why mystery fans and paranormal aficionados sometimes visit the abandoned village. 
Apparently, her restless soul still wanders at night around the place where she was most grievously murdered, if you believe in these kind of things. Her story is quite fascinating and allows us to go back to a different time, the year 1947, when Italy was struggling mightily to come out of the abyss in which it had fallen after five years of disastrous war. Those were difficult times, with plenty of acts of violence being perpetrated left and right, poisonous leftovers from the civil war that had divided the country in two. The echoes of the murders in the Death Triangle or the massacre of trade unionists in Sicily didn't get to Troiano. Things were the same as they had always been since time immemorial. Elvira was the belle of the village, turning heads everywhere she went. It wasn't yet time for the famous Maggiorate, the Gina Brigida, Sofia Loren, that would have become famous all over the world thanks to their atomic curvaceousness, but many dreamed about her. She was a good girl and didn't have time to dream about fame or the silver screen. What time and money to waste to go to a cinema? There was stuff only for rich people. Everything in the Orlandini family house spoke about hard work, sacrifice and righteousness. The most prized possession? A bicycle. The Sunday dress to be saved at all costs, the good shoes to be mended year after year. Everyone's thoughts were on the big event down the road, the happy day when Elvira would have been married to her betrothed, a local lad by the name of Ugo Ancilotti. He definitely wasn't as glamorous as Elvira, but he had his feet firmly planted on the ground, worked hard and saved every penny he could. He wasn't much of a talker though, he always seemed to have a lot on his mind. People didn't find it strange, he was a veteran, God only knows what he had to endure in his time away on the front line. While her family tended the fields on the small family farm, Elvira worked as a maid of a rich, powerful Swiss family, the Salt. Aside from being very rich, they had no problem throwing their power around when things didn't go their way. No one in Toyano dared to get between them and what they wanted. Elvira was 22, the right age to get married, but they needed to wait until the harvest season was over. Then she will have her big day and start a new life together with her beau. June the 5th, 1947, 2pm, first heatwave of the summer, clouds heavy with rain on the horizon. Everyone in town is getting ready for the event of the day, the 5pm Corpus Domini procession, the highlight of their day, one of the very few in the year where you didn't work on a Thursday. To get ready, Elvira had to get some water from the fountain down the road, not far, less than 500 yards away. With a pitcher and a towel, she left the family house, never to return again. On her way, she met a friend, chatted briefly with her before disappearing round the bend into the woods. Two hours later, her mother and sisters got worried. It wasn't like her to be so tardy, she risked being late for the procession, the one event that everyone in town wouldn't miss. Mami Rosaria went looking for her, asking anyone if they had seen her. Nothing. It was like she had disappeared from the face of the earth. Something was wrong, very wrong. Rosaria went back home and got her husband Antonio and his brother to get out and look for her baby girl. They left the farm work behind and ran to the fountain. They immediately noticed the pitcher and Elvira's flip-flops, but what startled them was a large, ominous puddle of what looked a lot like blood, together with clear signs that something heavy had been dragged into the thick woods. There was an old drainage canal that went downhill from the fountain. They followed it, looking for any sign of the young woman. They didn't have to look very far. Elvira's body was there, her throat slashed by a five-inch cut so deep that almost separated her head from the neck. 
blood everywhere on her face, in the mouth, on the clothes. The father went absolutely crazy, doing everything he could to save his daughter. He and his brother grabbed her by the waist, trying to carry her to the fountain, as if some water could save her. Little did he know that this act would irreparably compromise the crime scene, making the work of the investigators almost impossible. Two local lads saw the scene and tried to help, but it was all for nothing. Elvira had died almost immediately, drowned in her own blood. The Carabinieri, the military police that had offices everywhere in Italy, got there in a few minutes, but couldn't do anything other than state the fact that the woman was dead. They immediately noticed how there were other marks on her head, as if the murderer had struck it after she was dead, at least three times. The towel was nowhere to be found, as the murder weapon. Elvira was also missing her underwear, but there was no visible sign of sexual violence. The Carabinieri made one plus one and came out immediately with their version of the truth. Such a crime of passion could have only been done by one person, the woman's fiancé, Hugo Ancilotti. It was a simple case. As far as they were concerned, the dude was weird, had done unspeakable things in the world, but even most suspiciously, had showed up at the fountain well before the news of the death of the young woman spread around. What about the suspicious stains on his trousers? It looked a lot like blood. Asking people in town, everyone said that things weren't so smooth between the two lovers. They often fought and had separated for a while, before reconciling and deciding to get married. Open and closed, as simple as they come. Despite what the Carabinieri thought, Ancelotti didn't crumble even after hours and hours of harsh questioning. He was innocent, no matter what they said. Even without any smoking gun, there was more than enough to send the fiancé to jail. The murder was attracting a lot of media coverage. The higher-ups wanted to show that things were under control, they needed the culprit, and they needed it fast. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. If the original plan had been to quickly move on from this bloody story, let's say it backfired quite spectacularly. The audience was fascinated with what became known as the Corpus Domini murder and lapped every story that was published, especially the more outlandish. All of the elements of a good old-fashioned media frenzy were there for everyone to see. Was the victim good-looking? Check. Did she look a bit too good-looking? Enough to make the man want to better and the women envious of her natural beauty? Check and check. Was there a lot of inconclusive evidence and lawyers that would use every trick in the book to save their client from spending his life in jail? Definitely check. Was there a political angle to exploit, one that fit the red-hot fight between the Communist Party and the Christian Democrats, the one that brought Italy inches from another civil war? See above. One of the members of the defense team was a socialist member of parliament, Giacomo Picchiotti, who offered his services pro bono and convinced two famous lawyers to do the same. The media were all too happy to keep the obsession of the audience alive, providing constantly new theories and supposed evidence to keep talking about the murder of the village bell. Regular people 
like the fiancé. He looked like a good guy, a bit shy, a veteran who had done his part in the war, someone to root for. No one really wanted to admit that he could have done it. They needed a feel-good story, at least one to stop thinking about the hardships they were all going through. As it happened so often in similar cases, the attention shifted from the accused to the victim, whose life was scrutinized without much respect for her memory. Was she a virgin? Who did she lose her virginity to? Some people said she was seeing someone else, a married man, that she had received some sort of death threat. What about the time spent working in the salt house? Didn't they have a young son, one that had noticed, like everyone else, how good-looking Elvira was? Maybe he did try to get fresh with her and got mad when he didn't get what he wanted. Rich, spoiled kids don't take rejection kindly, so there you have a much better theory. It almost took two years to get to a trial, which became almost a mockery of the legal system. Things went absolutely overboard, a real circus, a collective psychodrama. The trial started at the Pisa courthouse, way too small to accommodate the hundreds and hundreds of people that wanted to have a look at the superb murderer locked inside a cage. When it became impossible to maintain public order, the Pisan judges declared that they were unable to guarantee a fair trial, which forced the move to Florence. Things there did go even worse, with more than 2,000 people showing up at every single court hearing. Things got out of hand when illegal bookmakers started to collect bets from the audience with the quotes changing from hour to hour, constantly modified after hearing a witness or a statement from the defense. All sorts of questionable characters tried to make some money from the feeding frenzy. You had your mediums, your fortune tellers, your water diviners, together with those people that know how things happen but cannot come out in the open, you know why. On a single day, the public prosecutors got 20 anonymous letters, each accusing either the fiancé or the lightning rod that seemed made to attract the anger of the audience, the rich brat. The son of the Salt family was of Elvira's age, but managed to demonstrate that, on the day of the murder, he was in Rome, getting a fine for parking one of his mother's cars in a no-parking area. There were others that accused the relative of the poor girl a guy that, very conveniently, decided to relocate to America before the trial started. The only possible murderer was therefore the fiancé, who remained adamant regarding his innocence. People in town rooted for him, never believing he was guilty, but they weren't alone. Hugo received hundreds of letters from fans, people that supported him and wanted him to stay strong in front of the accusations he was facing. The courtroom became an arena, with the judge sometimes being drowned by the crowd cheering, laughing or shouting. One by one, all of the evidence brought by the state was shot down by the defense. Hugo got to the crime scene on his bicycle, as it was the only road to get to Elvira's place, where they were supposed to meet before going to church for the procession. Elvira's friend, under oath, said that they had met in those woods on the day of the murder, but no proof of this was ever found. On the crime scene, there were some footprints, but they were the wrong size, they were too small. What about the blood on his trousers? The stains were incredibly small, not consistent with the violence of the slash that had killed the poor woman. When the juggler is caught, blood squirts everywhere. The timing was also off. Hugo and Elvira had met earlier in the day at mass, which ended around 1.30pm. There wasn't enough time for Hugo to get back to his parents' place, eat his lunch, get to the fountain and kill his fiance. It just didn't add up. The prosecution team knew they didn't have a solid case in their hands 
which explains why they didn't ask for life in jail, but only 18 years. Despite the protests of Elvira's family, who were convinced that it had been Hugo to kill their baby girl, the evidence wasn't there. On July the 21st, 1949, after just three hours of deliberation, the jury found the fiancé innocent. Much of the more questionable evidence presented by the state was thrown out. The anonymous letter that Ancelotti received a few weeks before the murder, the one urging him not to get married, without saying exactly why, was gone. What about the witch that witnessed that Elvira was afraid of being pregnant after an illicit affair with a married man, a man ruthless enough to want her dead? Gone as well. The salacious line of questioning that revolved on the physical aspect of the relationship between the two lovers only made a mockery of the prosecution, who ended up with a lot of egg on their face. When did you do it the first time? Were you standing? Was it consensual? Are you sure no one went there before you? Seriously, Italian justice has definitely seen a lot of questionable strategies in the past, but this is pretty low on the decency scale. It was all for nothing. Hugo went back to his hometown, a hero, cheered by everyone except Elvira's family. Ancelotti was one of the very last people to leave Toyano, unable to leave the place where the love of his life had been so cruelly taken from him. He died there on March the 30th, 2013, age 91, still proclaiming his innocence and looking for the murderer. The evidence was not conserved properly, which makes it impossible to use modern DNA techniques on it. At this point, 75 years later, we will never know who killed Elvira in the Battle of Toyama. Some people say that the parking ticket of the rich brat was a bit too convenient that such a powerful family would have no problem convincing a traffic warden to come out with a ticket out of thin air. Who knows? And frankly, who cares? Everyone is dead, no one is around, including the people that said that she was a flirt, that the father was very strict and old-fashioned, plus a bunch of even more outlandish theories I won't even consider. The splendid villa where the young woman worked as a maid has changed hands many times. Only the tombstone remain, with the fading picture of a great smile forever frozen in time in the middle of remains of her hometown. Maybe that's why people come here, following the rumors that say that her soul is still around, wandering the woods where she was so brutally killed, unable to get to the other side, relieving that fateful day, night after night. I don't know about you, but this idea makes me kind of sick. Why would such a cheerful young woman, one that was so full of life and had nothing but great things to look forward to, would decide to stick around where she was deprived of her life? I would much rather think of her somewhere warm, safe, where she will finally have time to smile and laugh and dance and have a good time. I hope that she's together with her fiancé, spending the rest of eternity together, making up for lost time. The universe is a rough place, a lot less forgiving than we would like to admit, but it has to have some balance. Call it karma, call it however you like, I just can't accept that someone or something condemned the Belle of Toyano to spending eternity reliving the day of her murder. That's just wrong, no one is that evil. That was all for this week, we really hope that you like the story of this weird corner of Tuscany that will never get on the front page of a travel guide and the tale of the murder that propelled it on every front page of the country for years. Let us know if you like this kind of episode or not, we are exceedingly easy to reach. Just drop us a message on our social media accounts or an email. Our address is podcast at larno.it, that is podcast 
at larno.it. Every feedback is greatly appreciated. I'm still your friendly neighborhood host, Luca Bocci, and I will see you again, if you wish so, next Friday for another episode of What's Up Tuscany, the only English language podcast made by real Tuscans and dedicated to anyone around the world that has a special place in his heart for this wonderful land we're very blessed to call home. Thanks for getting to the end of the episode. Thanks for listening and goodbye. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.